Hi. <laughs> Hi, Jen. Hi, Mimi. I'm Mimi, and I'm a recent graduate from YSOA. Um, I'm an MRF1, so I did the three-year program. Hi, my name is Jen Shin. Um, I'm a recent 2020 grad of both the MRC2 program at the School of Architecture and the Environmental Management program at the School of Forestry. I mean, I think it's worth saying that have definitely been inspired from the first podcast by Sarah and Lily. We kind of wanted to continue the conversation, especially in light with the recent events with international student community and the visa policy that the Trump administration and ICE passed, thankfully has been resigned. However, we thought it was kind of important to open up the conversation because there are many things that we feel like we should talk about. Definitely. Thanks for that intro. Maybe we could just get started just by talking about our own experiences at YSOA as non-white, non-Anglo-Saxon students. Yeah, and kind of give the listeners a background of our own families' immigration stories, of our own immigration stories, and our identities as Americans defined through legal and cultural constructs, which have been really heightened during both of our times at YSOA. One question that I've had for you um, in the past, and I know we've had this conversation before, but do you consider yourself an American? And how does that play into your availability to be fully present and participate fully in life at YSOA? Yeah, um, I feel like that's kind of an evolving question on my part. So as a background, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and I moved here when I was seven years old. And I'm a single child, so it's just me and my parents. We had no family here. And um, I think the question of do I consider myself an American honestly never really phased me, nor did I put too much thought into it until recent years. For most of my life, I was very kind of unaware of the political and legal processes that went on for my family, for us to be here, for us to kind of participate in our communities, for me to have an education, for them to work, et cetera, et cetera. And because my parents kind of didn't share that information with the intention to protect me from kind of the stress or maybe even the anxieties that come from that, I always kind of thought of myself the same as everyone else. I was here, I was just, you know, having my education throughout elementary, middle, high school. I was going to go to a college. I, everything kind of really seemed parallel with others. But I think going into undergrad and then a graduate school at YSOA and going through admissions processes where you kind of have to define who you are, what your legal status is, what your race is, what your ethnicity is, et cetera, et cetera. And also prove yourself through personal statements, through grades and all of kind of this abundance of material and for us a portfolio, that's when I started to kind of really question if I was an American. And I think for a lot of my life, I would have probably considered myself, yeah, I'm American, I live here, my culture is here and I I connect with that culture and 
and I can't see myself elsewhere the same way I see myself here. But but at YSOA, I realized I was extremely different. And I started to feel that before in my undergrad years, but at YSOA mm-hmm. specifically, that that experience, and I think we'll talk more about it, and I want to hear what you think, really just became heightened in a way that I almost don't want to say that I'm American and I want to embrace the fact that I'm Colombian to my fullest being or like potential. Um, so that's been kind of a really interesting journey and and really recent and I think I'm still going through it and still trying to develop kind of my thoughts around it or my beliefs. Yeah. How do you kind of respond to that question? Do you consider yourself an American? Yeah. Actually, before we we get to that, I just wanted to respond to something that you said that really kind of struck a chord with me, which is this idea of constantly having to prove yourself, whether it be through this bureaucratic paperwork or through checkboxes or through admissions, essays and grades and test scores. I think that condition of constantly having to prove yourself was something that I was really not expecting once I came to YSOA and something that I found that we had to do all the time in order to get into the classes that we wanted, in order Mm -hmm. to get the research positions that we wanted or the TF ships. And I think it really interacts in an especially hard way with immigrants and international students in particular who may have had experiences having to prove themselves as belonging in this country. And then just in this latest round of the new ICE ruling that thankfully, as you mentioned, got rescinded, but just another layer of having to prove your worth, of having to prove that you get to be here, even though you've already gotten that admission letter, even though you've already secured your seat, that there's just this additional layer of just having to show that you belong here can be really wearing and kind of disproportionately, I think, affect immigrant students or international students. When you said that, it just reminded me of that experience. And we can talk maybe a little bit later or whenever about kind of this culture of opacity at YSOA, where we're not really sure if we're doing the right thing in in terms of proving ourselves. Perhaps we can get to that later. Um, Mm -hmm. I can kind of answer your question, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Thanks for sharing your American story. I'm always curious to hear how people who are not white and have either been living in America for a long time or are consider themselves American, what their relationship is, just because I think that it's not something that we really talk about that much, but it kind of can make us feel less alone when we do talk about it with each other. Um, my relationship with my own Americanness, I think, has, like yours, has really shifted throughout my life. I was born and raised in New Jersey. And growing up, I didn't, even though I was born here, I didn't really consider myself an American as a, as a kid, just because the idea of Americanness that was presented to me meant that, that you had to be white, you had to be living in a house with a yard and eating certain types mm-hmm. of food. And those were just not really things that I necessarily identified with. Um, of course, that's just one way of being American and identifying with those qualifiers doesn't necessarily make you American. But even though I grew up in a culturally diverse town in New Jersey, I still didn't really ever feel like I belonged here um, in the beginning. And I always felt like an outsider. And this kind of continued on in my undergrad experience, being one of only a very small handful of students of color in the architecture program at my school, kind of further codified this idea that in order to gain any sort of success, I had to constantly prove myself, constantly prove that I deserved to be there or had a a right to be 
in the spaces of architecture um, and then I would have to adapt to this idea of architecture that was predominantly white. And it wasn't until I moved to New York City after undergrad and then came to YSOA, much like you did, believe me, it sounds like where we were both able to kind of explore what it meant to be American and I got to explore my own Americanness and all of the burdens and privileges that come with that. Um, suddenly I realized that seeking work in America was something that I could do very easily. I didn't need a visa or a sponsor in order to go to school or work here. And of my MARC2 cohort in the class of 2019, I was one of five Americans. And I think that was the first time that I really felt like I was representing America within any group of people. And I remember feeling conflicted about it. On one hand, I was really proud to be one of only a handful of American students in my class at Yale. And on the other, I couldn't help but feel really tokenized. I remember as our teachers, they would really brag about really openly to us and to each other about how diverse our class was. And yet, like, totally didn't fully respect the full complexity of everyone's backgrounds and experiences of what that diversity meant. Like, they yeah. didn't, it, it almost really felt like they didn't want to deal with all of that, that other stuff that came with our different skin colors, that they didn't really want to deal with the experiences and other types of knowledge that we brought to YSOA. And I remember those beginning months were really challenging for all of us, and we would kind of group together and complain about it a lot. But it felt like we were being treated with kid gloves in many ways, that there was this expectation that we didn't really know how to be considered worthy and we needed to adapt really quickly to white knowledge. And if we didn't do that, then we were somehow like less legitimate. Yeah, and that, of course, continued on, but I guess it was the initial culture shock of that first term that I think a lot of us like weren't really expecting. You know, for me, I think exploring my own Americanness is still a continuous process. And now at this point, I can, you know, I'm I'm very proud to say that I'm, I'm American. Well, maybe I shouldn't say very proud, actually. I, I don't know if I really <laughs> feel that way. But I do like definitively say I am American, that this is yeah. the only country I've ever known. And and so I do feel a sense of responsibility to be a, a voice and helping shape what that really means, because it's not the thing that was presented to me when I was a kid. It's it's actually much bigger than, than all of that, and it's much bigger than all of us. Yeah, and I'm sure it's also, I feel like something that we've talked about before, too, and seems to come up in conversation a lot, especially with shared experiences like the one that you've just shared about yourself having to really deal with in some words the good and the bad the burdens of being of this dual cultural world mm -hmm. and you're always trying to navigate both of them i feel like when i really try to embrace one i feel like i'm leaving the other behind and i'm almost failing the other how do you feel like you navigate that or have to navigate it at YSOA specifically too? I think that became really heightened for me. Yeah, that's such a big question. Um, just yeah. this like constant inner monologue that we're having, you know, in order to prove your, your worth, you feel like you have to abandon this part of you that is, you know, in, inherent to who you are, that it's as you were born mm -hmm. I struggle with that all the time and I don't know if I've necessarily come to a 
particular, you know, if, if I really have any good <laughs> tools or clues. Yeah, it's such a difficult question. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like maybe you have some ideas about how you've navigated that. I'd be curious to learn more about what things have been working for you. Yeah, I mean, I also don't know if I feel confident navigating that. Again, I think more specifically to YSOA and looking back at the three years, I realized that, you know, I was there for, I mean, it sounds so cliche, but I was there for a reason that I deserved to be there. At least at the end, I tried to really kind of embrace that. And similarly, I was able to find friends like you kind of really wanted to embrace that too through our work. In that sense, I feel really, really lucky that I was able to find those friendships that allowed me and also comforted me. And I feel like I try to reciprocate the same and this is going to be tough. And these are the types of projects or the type of work that we want to concentrate on. And maybe there isn't a lot of precedents to look at to see how you navigate this type of work. And when I say this type of work, it's like much more centered around our communities or lived experiences, or in this case, my journey as an immigrant, et cetera, et cetera. And, mm-hmm. and that it was okay, however it developed, it was going to be fruitful in some way. I really think that that has been the case. And I think having people, even though there were just few that thought the same and, and wanted to do similar things really, really, really helped. So I don't think I would have been able to feel confident about it and and be able to kind of navigate. I'm going to embrace that I'm from this place and that I'm to be there for my community and that we need to give a platform to their voices if I hadn't had two or three other people next to me doing it with me. I think that was really, really important. And finding a sense of community was really, really important for me to be able to sort of navigate that. Yeah, it really only takes even one or two other people to help you feel seen and feel enough of a sense of belonging to feel the courage that you need. Have the courage to be able to speak from an authentic place from within you. The questions that you feel need to be explored. I remember in many instances, either through studio or, or even in seminars in some cases, feeling an internal tension and, and just conflict with the way the either the studio brief or the, the seminar or whatever course group project it might have been, just really taking issue with the initial framing of it. It was, I think this happens many times, maybe many students feel this way, that sometimes the advanced studios can feel really topical in the way they're framed or they're seeking to solve a problem that is actually not really for a student from Yale or a group of students to solve in the course of 16 weeks or however long a semester is and it can it can feel really lonely to have these feelings of doubt and not know if it feels safe to talk about them and gathering that community drawing in your community close in those moments can be the difference between betraying yourself and doing something that doesn't yeah. feel right and and actually doing something that takes a lot of courage and going down a path that isn't necessarily clear and doesn't necessarily have the precedence that you were saying to be able to explore, but knowing that this this authentic process is something that you need to do, if not for yourself, also for making it easier for future people to do it too. This starts to get into this ambiguous definition to diversity, 
to internationalism and this reoccurring systemic and institutional quote-unquote internationalism that we are faced with through studio prompts, through seminars, through summer trips, yet lacks a lot of conversation in the way that we approach these communities that are external to YSOA, the way we approach the communities internal to YSOA that actually identify as the ones on the prompt Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. kind of an ongoing really lack of communication in terms of how to acknowledge or be aware of the types of people we are either trying to help through these prompts, you could say, or that are sitting next to us, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, did you, I think you're bringing up a really important point, this sort of idea, there's still this inherent sense of othering in the way a lot of Mm -hmm. the studio prompts or seminars or travel programs are framed. We're still, at the end of the day, these glittery Yale students looking in from the outside and have ideas about how to solve people's problems and that can feel really uncomfortable for someone who are members of these communities that like quote-unquote need help or something about their community to be fixed yeah exactly the advanced studio honestly the urge and my point of view from administration to really have this diverse set of prompts the idea at YSOA that YSOA is plural and there's social justice embedded and environmental justice and socioeconomic justice, all of this vetted in these prompts takes us to places that are truly foreign to us in the sense that there isn't a real liaison to lead us to navigate the conversation of the communities that we're supposedly trying to design for. In my experience, there's been kind of a real lack of conversation on the language on how to approach Mm. these communities on how Mm -hmm. we should even talk about these communities, even if we're not talking Mm -hmm. with them, Mm -hmm. really questioning the status quo in terms of language that adequate Mm -hmm. to identify someone. Mm -hmm. We continuously abstract these communities so much so to fit our prompts. Mm -hmm. We are used to that practice of abstracting and then we turn around and we don't realize that someone from that community is sitting right next to us. Most of the time, that person maybe hasn't even felt comfortable enough to say anything about the topic discussed or their backgrounds or et cetera, nor they should carry that burden too, you know? But because the comfort level is just not there, the language isn't there. And so Mm -hmm. it's like this weird double-edged sword from abstracting too much to the person that maybe can actually really give insightful meaning to this type of work. Yeah, I think naming this abstraction of culture and abstraction of communities into this sort of intellectualized language of the academy is inherently in itself a very othering process and inherently doesn't provide space. Getting back to something that you touched Mm -hmm. on earlier, which is this definition of diversity, it really shows that while the intention may be good, the need to create a diverse student body, this observation that you're making really highlights that it stops there right now. We're happy with this idea that we have a diverse student body. The culture of the school 
is such that we're not able to move beyond that. We're not able to do the work, which is messy and confusing and not really precedented, of incorporating all of that diversity and all of the experiences and the knowledge diverse people bring with them Mm -hmm. in their lives to the table. And when that happens, it not only closes off the ability for ethnically or culturally diverse people Mm -hmm. for our stories to be in the room, It also closes off the ability for socioeconomic diverse stories or diversity of gender stories or a diversity of many, many other types of experiences, including different abilities. There are so many other ways that diversity plays out that's not just the color of your skin or what country you come from. When we're not able to provide space, then we're closing off our ability to know and understand one another in meaningful and impactful ways, and our work suffers as a result. Yeah, I completely echo what you're saying, and I'm glad that you bring up our work suffers viewing diversity in terms of internationalism as an exchange. It's transactional at that point. Yes, exactly. Transactional. Jen may be getting a little bit more into the international student visa policy. Mm-hmm. How do you think the administration or the student body handled the situation? The stance that was taken by the administration was this policy is not going to affect YSOA students because we will have a combination of distance and in-person learning. To me, that is deeply disappointing because it takes the stance of individualism. We and our own are protected and therefore we don't really have to worry about it without fully appreciating how threatening this is to every single one of our individual freedoms. I think that this sort of like business as usual, YSOA will be okay stance really undermines our role as a global leader in architecture. And the fact that our advanced studios and our seminars are traveling all over the world and like engaging in global problems, it necessitates that we have an international and global student body and Mm -hmm. we're actually providing protections and we're actually advocating on behalf of these students. This transactional nature oftentimes, like the visa system and the admission systems in our country might treat international students. Yeah, I think the Harvard and MIT case made it a lot more evident. Like, I think it's worth stressing, this is not something new. This is not something recent. This is how the international community as a whole is often valued. The international community is an extremely diverse umbrella. Mm -hmm. And that includes, you know, someone that is on a student visa. That includes someone that is perhaps a refugee or an asylee. That encompasses Mm -hmm. documented students. It encompasses a lot of people. So Mm -hmm. while the policy was about F-1 visas, it's important to acknowledge that they were talking about the international community. Students were the target for this particular case, but it's important to remember that this policy was actually targeting internationals more broadly in America. Exactly, yes. The fact that it was by ICE, one of the most cruel Mm -hmm. agencies to pass Mm -hmm. this country. All of these terms, who it's coming from, all of this really speaks volume. And then the Harvard and MIT case comes out, which I was obviously a strong supporter for. I was extremely conflicted. And I think Mm -hmm. in one sense, I was very happy Harvard and MIT 
and then other schools afterwards supported the case, fought for this because yes, we need to acknowledge that these institutions do have a lot of leverage. However, <laughs> I was very conflicted because it only kind of reiterated this narrative of why international students are so valuable. All of the conversations around that ended up being, look how much money they contribute to society. Look mm -hmm. how much they do when they graduate. Look how the U.S. economy would be affected. It was all really mm -hmm. based on productivity and monetary value that completely does not acknowledge to just be a human right to be able to be an international student and have an education, mm -hmm. regardless mm -hmm. of your financial worth. Having the conversation mm -hmm. instead around, hey, these people are really making the effort to come to this country to have a better education that maybe in their home countries is not available, or maybe the type of work that they really want to contribute to society is located here and they can't find it elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There are all of these other conversations that should have had not based on some type of value, some type of exchange. Yeah, absolutely. Being framed as this like financial and economic reason why we should advocate for international students to be here. It really brings to light how vulnerable international and immigrant students are and a lack of protections that I think international students have. The amount of stress that that puts on a student to know that they are fearful of whether or not they're able to stay in this country isn't necessarily going to be the best mental space to advocate for your own needs. Already, it's just making a student feel as if they, they don't belong there and constantly having to prove yourself. This yeah. systemic culture of constantly having to prove yourself can make it really difficult to advocate for your own needs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What should we talk about now? <laughs> Maybe one of the things that we wanted to touch on was just the admissions process and how yeah. in this last round of admissions, the student admissions committee was instructed that YSOA's stance on race and YSOA's stance on socioeconomic background is that it is blind. Race blind, it's socioeconomic right. blind, and... We all know this. When when we say that we're race blind or colorblind or socioeconomically blind, our student body is going to be reflective of the systemic inequalities mm -hmm. that have been institutionalized in our academies, in our society, and in every way that our culture functions. Yeah. That is just simply not acceptable and I really struggled with that stance because it felt to me like it was just not doing enough. Inherent in that is also to shift away from the tokenization of diversity and the tokenization of an international student body and an ethnically diverse student mm -hmm. body to really standing mm -hmm. with diverse students and seeing and understanding and making space for different types of knowledge to exist at YSOA. Mm -hmm. I love that you said that because there's something about the colorblind process mm -hmm. that is actually outwardly stated in financial documents mm -hmm. when you're applying for aid or scholarships right. or whatever right. extremely extremely hurts mm -hmm. communities that are much more vulnerable because of systemic racism etc cetera, etc cetera. and 
ends up checking the boxes for the perfect diverse body at YSOA, which is this like <laughs> ethnic, ambiguous body that feel comfortable around the majority white student body and probably has a really strong white academic background. Right, right. And therefore knows the context that they're going into, mm-hmm. but is not of a different maybe academic or knowledge background, maybe of different beliefs, not an extreme or anything too far from, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. one that would be perceived as intimidating. And that's what all of these blindness and checking these boxes or ignoring the boxes is actually doing yeah enhancing this definition to what diversity means for YSLA. No, that's totally right. <laughs> getting back to this performing, just yeah. getting as adjacent to white as possible is the the thing that you're expected to do in order to survive or make it. You have to constantly remind that you're not going to threaten the institution's way of knowing, way of creating knowledge. As soon as you do that, you're censored. Exactly. Ideology is not welcome. When that happens, again, everybody across the board suffers when we're not able to bring our full authentic selves and our full authentic stories and our intergenerational backgrounds to the table. Mm -hmm. Yes. Snaps to that. (laughs) (laughs) And shout out for Paprika, too, for allowing us to have the space to do this. Absolutely. It's nice to share these types of conversations hopefully a wider audience it is. to then be able to have these conversations more. Yeah, and Limi, I know we've got to have a lot of these conversations in this last semester. We were both in mm-hmm. Stella Betts's library studio and just mm-hmm. that studio in itself was a really great place for us to be able to talk about definitions of diversity, of what it means to be American, of what democracy is all about. Those conversations felt really private and it feels really nice to be able to have a conversation with you that hopefully other people can be involved in and I'm really glad to see this podcast get off its feet I hope yeah. it makes people feel less alone and I hope it makes people feel they have a sense of belonging thanks for doing this yeah completely mm-hmm. I think it's worth acknowledging that there's a lot of change happening and we're hoping it's for the better and it's totally tiring but there are a few things that have helped us along the way that we wish we knew right? Yeah. So do you want to share one thing that you wish you knew from your experiences slash have learned from them? Yeah, um, I think, I think um, one thing that would have been nice if someone could have prepared me for was you would have to be your best advocate. And that process can be really emotionally draining and cause you to really doubt yourself. And so be prepared to to feel that vulnerability and to be gentle with yourself as you go through this process of advocating for oneself and that vulnerability hangovers are real. So <laughs> after you yes. after you have to talk to someone about something that's really sensitive, you may go into this tizzy of self-doubt and self-consciousness. And at that point, it's important to realize that um, it's a good time to take a step back, to breathe, to yes. reach out to friends, to draw in your community, and that it's it's totally unfair that you may have this additional burden and be doing additional labor to advocate for yourself and, and others. But none of this is a reflection of you and who you are. And you do deserve to be here. 
Yes. We deserve to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Say it. Um, Please, everyone say that out loud. (laughs) Day one. I mean, I'm just going to echo what you said because it's so big. Self-care is so important. I know it's also like cliche and the hashtag, but it's so important. (laughs) And just remember that you're not crazy. Remember that literally the thoughts that are going through your head, there's someone else feeling them too. It's okay Mm -hmm. to feel them, be present and acknowledge them, but don't let them get you down. I think on a more practical note, jotting down stuff in writing is just so important. And this will help you through processes like the financial aid. It'll help you professionally down the line. I know a lot of us, especially in the international community, feel like we always have to have our guard up. And that's so tiring. And it's so tiring checking if you're doing everything okay. Mm-hmm. Making space for everyone's backgrounds to be present in the room and to be respected begins by making the assumption that the person is in the room with you. Help to create a culture of empathy and inclusivity. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. A good practice is to just constantly be questioning the language you use and Mm -hmm. being vulnerable to learn different ways to talk Mm -hmm. about different things. Always being able to grow in terms of how you identify yourself but also identify with others yeah this was such a yummy conversation thank you for (laughs) for having it with me yes thank you i'm so glad we had this (laughs) co-creating should we take a deep breath yes (sighs) 